This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agopymatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a question by visiting askamatchmaker.com. In this week's episode, you may notice some audio issues. Yikes. What can I say? Podcast life problems. Thank you for listening. This week's guest is Marlo Thomas. Marlo Thomas is an actress, a producer, an author, a philanthropist, and a social activist. In fact, she's in the OG group of feminist icons. Having starred in the sitcom That Girl in the 60s, she is the prototype to the single girl in the city sitcoms that have been in production ever since. She's won four Emmys, a Golden Globe, and a Peabody for her work in television, and a Grammy for her children's album, Free to Be You and Me. In 2014, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She serves as National Outreach Director for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and is this month's cover girl for Town & Country Magazine, highlighting her work with St. Jude. Last year, her book, written with her husband, Phil Donahue, What Makes a Marriage Last, became a New York Times bestseller. Their book pairs well with their podcast, Double Date, where you get to listen in as they pull down the curtains to learn from 40 couples their secrets to a happy life together. On a personal level, I just want to say what an impact Marlo Thomas has had on me and I'm sure even some of my listeners. I grew up with parents who emigrated here in the 80s. They didn't have any exposure to free to be you and me, but my mom certainly watched that girl to help her learn English. Marlo implanted a seed that would influence my mom to find her own path and shows like Mary Tyler Moore, Murphy Brown, Sex in the City, Girls, and Broad City have continued to keep the candle lit. These female main character shows where they find their own path, all these paths originate with that girl, Marlo Thomas. Marlo advocated for that girl to be made to the doubt of the higher ups and with exposure, it inspired thousands and influenced millions of women to forge their own path. At the urging of my friends, Michelle, Lori, Lisa, and Leisha, I started listening to Free to Be You and Me. And even though this album is nearly 50 years old, the message is so progressive and so awesome that it's a permanent fixture in my home as our go-to children's album. Again, exposure drives the path forward. And I hope my children experience the awe of Marlo Thomas and her work and appreciate the opportunities they have because of her. Marlo Thomas, welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you. That's quite an introduction. I can't (laughs) wait to hear what I have to say. I just mentioned a minute ago, like I'm obsessed with your podcast, um, Double Date. Pair as well with your book, What Makes a Marriage Last. Uh, I have to know, like, what was the inspiration for you and Phil to even embark on this kind of book? Because it's so different than anything else you've been involved in. Yeah, and actually, we had made a decision never to talk about our marriage when we first got married 41 years ago, uh, because we didn't want to, you know, be Dick and Liz, you know what I mean? We didn't want to become a professional married couple. So 
uh, we were very careful not to host the Emmys or the People's Choice Awards and all that stuff. But then after 40 years, we were interested, you know, like what people kept asking us, what's the secret sauce of your marriage? And we didn't know. I mean, we love each other. We like each other. We laugh together. Mm -hmm. So we thought, why don't we interview a lot of long married couples and see what they say? And uh, that was it. That was the whole inspiration of the book. It was kind of a, uh, at our, it was our 39th wedding anniversary. And we were talking about what are we going to do on our 40th? And that's when we decided to do the book. And then the podcast, Double Date, you know, came from that. And we've really enjoyed doing both of them. I mean, they're really fun for us. The people are great. I mean, John McEnroe and Patty are wonderfully funny and George Stephanopoulos and Ali and the Alders. I mean, they're just all great people. Some of them are our friends already. So I've really enjoyed, uh, we, we both have. And it's been fun working together because we thought we'd kill each other if we worked together because we're so, we're both type A personalities. We're both bossy, uh, but it, we're great. You know, I don't know that we could have done this the first year of our marriage, but after 40 years, you you know how to get along with each other. You know, it's it's so funny that you mentioned that because like one of the things in the bio that I mentioned a few times was exposure. And I feel like you're exposing listeners and readers to different types of relationships. Like one of the, it's funny, like earlier this week, I, I received a question from a listener about like, do you feel like strong women struggle to find relationships because of their quote, masculine energy, which I don't agree with whatsoever. And I said, you have to read Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue's book because they, they show you what strong women in relationships can look like. And I think with exposure, it, it does make you believe in love. And I think what's interesting about, you know, even the podcast, because you have the voice, you can hear it, is the diversity in these relationships. And I don't necessarily mean by race or sexuality, but you do have that. I mean, like in personality typing, you know, and that marriage is not perfect on year one. Like I think about your episode with Judge Judy and her husband, like that took him like, what it's like 30 years to finally figure out like how to be happy. They got they got divorced, I think, after about 17 years. And then they, they missed each other so much that they got married a year later. But, you know, John McEnroe's wife said something that I, I really took to heart. She, she was talking about, you know, they're arguing and how everybody fights and how you fight. And she says, at some point, you have to decide, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? And I thought, that's such a great thing. And I often think about that just when I'm about to, like, criticize Phil for something or ask them to do something a different way. I think to myself, is it worth it? Do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? I want to be happy. I'm not going to be happy if I make him feel bad or if I criticize him about this thing. And this thing isn't that big, so let it go. So that's one of the things right. I from, from interviewing these couples. Uh, Michael J. Fox said, you know, we're not, we're not looking for trouble. You know, he said some people pick at scabs and, you know, are trying to, uh, you know, get a one-upsmanship or they can't let the argument go. Let it go. Just let it go. James Carville said, just kick that can down the road. The hell with it. You know, let it go. And I, I think that's very good advice. I, I love that. I actually utilize that all the time. I always tell, I always tell everyone, like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Because if you want to be right, it's that's just ego. And speaking, you know, of ego, you know, right before we start recording, you, you know, you mentioned that you're Lebanese and I'm Greek. And I, I feel like our cultures have egos. I hope so. We all need to have egos. <laughs> yeah. You look like my family of uh, the dark hair, the flashy dark eyes. I mean, 
it's a it could be my sister or my cousin yeah. Oh, I'm so like, thank you, Marta. Now that I've mentioned that, since you mentioned George Stephanopoulos and Allie Wentworth, who like, I'm obsessed with as a couple, I, I could not wait for that episode to drop. Like, you know, she mentioned about how if George had married someone who was also Greek Orthodox, that would have been the jackpot. Those were her words. And I feel like I'm also explaining to people, not just Greeks or even Lebanese Americans or Indian Americans or Jewish Americans, like you don't have to hold out for the person that's in the same subculture as you. You can still find happiness beyond that. That isn't the secret. You know, the secret sauce is not marry somebody who's the same nationality or whose grandparents came from the same country. I, I don't think that's the secret sauce. I mean, I, I really think the secret sauce is having definitions the same, like good and bad or fair and unfair. Uh, you know, th those are acceptable and unacceptable. Phil and I agree completely on what those are. But, it, you know, I- Your values. Yeah, but there are those words. I mean, I remember uh, being with a, a boyfriend who, and I said something was unfair and he said, so what? And I thought, wow, this is a guy, you know, if you don't, if you don't see fair and unfair as something important, you know, and my husband and I do see fairness and unfairness and acceptability of behavior really the same. And I think, I think you really do need to define, you know, we can call it values, but it's even, even, uh, what's the word, more day to day. Marriage is one day at a time, you know, and, and, and those days build into a, a year, maybe a bad year one year, maybe a good year. But as the years go by, they're mostly good years, you know, because you ironed out the the the, the creeks. You know, when I got married, uh, I mean, I never wanted to be married. If you know anything about me, you know that's true. And I just thought marriage was too stifling a place for women. It was a bad, a bad idea for women. And uh, I just didn't think it was roomy enough for me, my career, all the things I want to do in life. But I met a man who had watched the Donahue show every day. And he read, l listened and learned from all those feminists and all the women who were complaining about their marriages and their husbands who stifled them. So when I met him, he was already kind of educated through his own show. Growth. Met, mm -hmm. Because when he got, you know, he was 21 years old in his first marriage. He was raised in the 40s and 50s. Those guys were absolute pigs. You know, they just did not have any idea. You know, his mother was a stay-at-home mom. My mom was. Not that it's a bad thing, but I think they would have preferred having a little more to their lives. And um, so we had to work out those cranks, even though, you know, I would look at him and say, how can you say that? I mean, I'm not the one responsible for that. You know, so there was and take your, put your clothes in the hamper and take your dirty dish out of the sink because he'd had everybody waiting on him his whole life. That's a learning thing and it can aggravate you, it can make you resentful. You know, I would say to him, if you don't put your clothes in the hamper, what is your message? Is your message to me, you do it? Because I'm not doing it. So you're gonna have to pick up after yourself. You have to have those arguments and those discussions and 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 come to it. Otherwise, a lot of, uh, uh, Sanjay Gupta's wife, who is not Indian, she's Swedish, and she was a, she's taken time off to raise her girls, but she was a, a divorce lawyer. And she said that one of the things, if she could name any word 
that uh, exists in all divorces, it's resentment. Somebody resents the other one. And that really, I felt very strong when I, uh, about that, it really hit me. And I, Phil and I talked about it afterward. And I said, you know, that's true. That's people who don't fight it out, who, who, who sit and suffer, who are victims within their marriage. There's nothing but resentment there. And then one day they just get up and leave or they shoot their husband. I mean, I don't know what they do, you know, but it doesn't work. You can't resent. You just can't. I want to I want to plug in here if if anyone has ever heard Marlo Thomas's Free to Be You and Me there's this amazing song or I guess I don't know if we call it the song it's like a but it's by Carol Channing called Housework and you just put that on repeat and we raise the next generation of people that are helping out with the housework okay so a lot during the pandemic many people moved back home and you know something right now the the market for housing is so tough people are really waiting out i mean even my husband and i we, you know we're trying to get a house and it's become impossible so we're waiting we're going to wait another year maybe things will calm down and i have people asking me questions like you know should i date a man who lives with his parents my response to that is if he cooks at least 50 percent of the meals and cleans his room and does his laundry you can date anyone who lives at home but that i don't know if that's if, if i'm being fair because well, the one thing I don't want is, at least in 2021, is for a woman to get, to, to be like my mom. You know, my mom met my, my dad, who went from four sisters, having, you know, he's the youngest of not, seven kids, so you have four sisters, to marrying my mom. So even though my dad did cook dinner every night because my mother was shoveling us everywhere, she was responsible for everything else, though. Yeah, and you're right, resentment does grow there. It does. And our mothers, and that particular, I'm older than you, but there was a whole particular generation who didn't feel uh, qualified to ask for more, who felt that was their job to wait on every right. you know, Mother's Day, we take a tray to her, right? Every other day she was slaving and they didn't know that they could say, hey, wait a minute, what about me? And that's why they were resentful because they had no exit. They had no out. And, you know, a lot of women would have liked to have gone back to college, but there was no money for the women to go to college. There was money for the kids, but not enough for the for the wife or mother. There was not a lot of attention even paid to women who wanted to go back. I mean, people made fun of women who went back to college in their late thirties or forties, when I, which I thought was fantastic for them to say, "Damn it, I'm going to get my life," you know. And my father used to always say, "This is it, kid. This is your whole life. There's no other life. So do what you want to do. Get what you want to get." and be kind to other people, but you got to get what you want out of life. And he told that to me and my two siblings. So you mentioned before that you felt stifled, uh, you felt like marriage might be stifling. You, correct me if I'm wrong, you married over 40, right? 42. 42. And what advice would you give women right now who find themselves, not necessarily, like they want relationships, but they think, you know, I think sometimes people come in with lists now, like, you know, I'm over 40, but you know, if I need a guy, he can't have kids or he has to be this height or has this income. Like, you know, I've waited this long. He has to be perfect now. Well, that's silly because you're not perfect either. <laughs> uh, if you're both looking for somebody perfect, the two of you aren't going to get together. That's the most important thing for a man or a woman thinking about marrying someone is that they're honest about who they are. You just have to be honest about who you are. Phil and I went together for three years and we got to know each other, you know, really well and be able to say, you know, what we needed and for ourselves. Ted Danson, married for the third time to Mary Steenburgen, 
and they're adorable. They've been married 30 years, but it's his third marriage and her second marriage. And I said to him, my God, three marriages. How did you get the optimism to get married a third time? He said, well, I had to learn to stop lying. I said, about what? He said, well, first of all, I cheated on my wives, but I lied about who I was. I wanted to have the image of this great, strong guy who could get through anything and who was really on top of things. He said, and I would you know, go to work or whatever. I'd be rejected. I was feeling that I'm getting old and I'm worried about that and I'm just not getting what I need or it didn't go well. He said, but when I came through the door, I was like, great, had a great day. But I never made myself vulnerable to my wife or my girlfriends. I wanted them to think that I was this strong guy on a white horse. So nobody ever knew me. They couldn't really love me because they didn't get to see me. When I met Mary, Mary didn't play that game. She didn't dance that dance. And I had to be who I was with her. And that's why I can be married 30 years to her. And I thought that was very important. And it isn't something just that men do. Men and women want to look better than they are. To, you know, as Chris Rock says, when you go out on a date, you're not really you. You're the representative of you. You're representing yourself as this fabulous person, but it's not you. But after a while, the real you comes out, and it's better that you do it sooner rather than later, because maybe the real you can't get along with this person. You know, maybe the real you and this person are not, you know, really suited. That's a big thing. You know, I, it makes me think of like the first episode from Double Date Podcast with Viola Davis and Julius Tenen, where if you're not yourself from the beginning, it's hard to establish the balance. Like, I feel like if you were to rename their episode, it would be the balance episode because they really balance themselves out with, they knew they're self-aware of their weaknesses. Right. And also, you know, we all have our weaknesses. We all have our idiosyncrasies that would drive anybody crazy. And we all have our strengths. And when, when you really get to know somebody the way I know my husband now after all these years, I see his weaknesses. I see his strengths. I, I see everything about him. And it's all one big package that I really admire, you know, uh, and, I, and, and I love. And I can tease him about stuff that he doesn't do right or, in my opinion, do well. And he can tease me because we know each other, you know, well enough now. Uh, I think it took us about, I would say, 10 years to be really who we were. And that's including the three years that you were dating before getting married? No, no. I would say about 10 years of knowing each other, about seven years of Right. I thought I knew him pretty well before I married him. And I did, but there were other things, other worries he had that he hadn't really shared, other guilts he had. You know, we all have these guilts that we carry around that we should have done this or we could have done that. Uh, about other people in our lives, our, maybe our parents, maybe our siblings, children. Mm -hmm. uh, we all have those. And, and, and it's a relief to get them out, you know, to say them to somebody else. And how much of this do you feel like, or maybe it's not the same, but like it's the accommodation of each other? Yeah, I think accommodation is huge. It's really huge. Because otherwise, you know, Judith Viorst, the children's writer, she said, no matter how much you wanted to, uh, he is never going to become you. <laughs> and mm -hmm. no matter how much he wants it, you to change, you're never going to become him. So that, knowing that, having that as the given, as they say in algebra, 
then you can accommodate that other person and say, okay, you know, that's, that's who he is. And he says, that's who she is. And I'm not going to change it. We used to fight all the time because I carry too much luggage on a trip and it would just ruin the trip. We'd start out on our trip and he would be nagging me about my luggage. And he'd say to me, it's like traveling with Zsa, Zsa Gabor, for God's sake, you know, and he'd uh, argue with me all the way in the cab to the airport. And then we get to the airport and he'd say to the baggage guy, do you see how many bags she has? And we're only going away for 10 days. Like the baggage guy gives a damn. He doesn't care. He wants a ticket. The right. It is $5 and be on your way. And then finally, he stopped doing that about 20 years ago. And I said to him one day, you don't nag me anymore about the luggage. He said, well, I finally gave up. I was not going to be able to affect that. And that is fantastic, you know, that he finally gave up. I'll share for accommodating too. Um, you know, I'm very extroverted. My husband is introverted. And I didn't have this problem so much with my husband, but with like past relationships where I dated introverted men, where it's like, okay, I'm ready to go. We need to leave. Like, not me, them. Like, they didn't want to work the room with me or they, you know, when they're ready to go, similar to my dad, when my dad's ready to go, he's like, we're leaving. It's not even a question. It's like, we have to go mid conversation, drop everything. Let's go. And so with my husband, in order to accommodate our different personalities at social events, what we've always done is have a conversation on the way to the event. Hey, what time are we leaving? Okay. We agree to this time. Like, let's say 11 PM. Okay. Whatever is happening at 11 p.m., I know I'm leaving. And whatever's happening with you, you're just going to have the patience because that's the time we agreed upon. And so what I'll do to accommodate my introverted husband is the first hour at any event, I will be next to him. We'll walk around the room together. We'll do the hors d'oeuvres, the wine, whatever. And then I park him. Park him with some friends. And then I get to go work Maria extroverted magic, meet new people, get what I want. 11 p.m., we're at the door. Let's go. Allie and George, they don't set a time. But Allie and George, me and Phil, you and your husband, that we're, we're all the same couple. I could stay all night and Phil's ready to go the minute he gets there. And so's George and Allie. George, George is done. Uh, so Allie, you know, says, okay, she says, he gets the gotta goes. He's at the door with the gotta go the minute they get there. And she said, she's just learned that when he's ready to go, let's just go. And I, I, I think I negotiate with Phil. We don't have a, a set time. But when I see he's like really bored and he wants to go, he's not a small talk guy. If somebody gets him in the corner, like Ralph Nader or somebody that's got something to say, he'll stay all night. But he doesn't mm -hmm. want to sit there talking about his kids or what it's like to be retired. I mean, he's just bored with that kind of conversation. But the small talk. Yeah, he can't do it. And I don't remember what episode it was, but you did mention, you know, you do so much for St. Jude's and he had to learn, or I don't know who had to learn, but he didn't have to come to every event with you. I had, I had was, to learn Okay. Had, when we first got together and I had to go to a St. Jude event and St. Jude to me is, you know, that's it. That's my passion. And that's my commitment. And I would say, you got to come. You have to be with me. And then finally I said, why does he have to? I mean, this is my commitment any more than I have to go to a Notre Dame football game, which I don't like, you know? So the first couple of years I went to the Notre Dame football game and thought I would kill myself because I hate football. I don't like any game that has to have stretchers standing by. That to me is not a game. That's a, that's a life and death thing. But anyway, so I had to learn that. It doesn't mean that he has to come. And he comes when it's a really big event or, you know, when it's something I really would like him to come to, but mostly I, I don't make him come to 98% of these things, but I had to learn that. And 
uh, George and Allie talked about that too. Allie likes to go to a lot of things and they realize too, uh, if he doesn't want to go, they don't have to go. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't look down on your coupledom if your husband or your wife isn't there at every single event you go to. And that's right. kind of a, a rough, uh, what's the word? It's a rough rule to make your spouse go with you to everything you like. When you met Phil, he had four children? He had five. His daughter lived with his mother, with, with her mother, and the four boys lived with him. It was a, a rude awakening, that's for sure. I mean, you know, I had, I was a single woman. I lived alone in a big house in Beverly Hills. You know, here I was moving in with a man who has four boys. I mean, you know, I never saw so many jock straps and wet towels in my life. They were very cute and sweet, but it was, it, it was, uh, it was an awakening. And I, what I had to learn at first, I was kind of innocent or stupid or something. I just figured I'm marrying this man I love. And by the way, he has four sons and is live with him. But as I got going, I realized that I couldn't be a cheerful bystander. I had to be a part of the entity that makes decisions. Otherwise, you know, they would be deciding things that affected my life. So I had to be involved in the, deci the deciding of things. So then that brought me closer to, you know, the core of the family. And that was a good thing. How old were the boys when, when, you, when you entered that family? The youngest was 10. Did you feel like an obligation to um, have to attend all of their events? No, no, no. You know, we would go to hockey games or, you know, baseball games and stuff like that. But no, I mean, first of all, I don't know that they wanted us because we were famous and people would look at us. So they didn't, Phil would wear a right. cap over his head and I would wear, you know, whatever. But they were happy when we didn't, you know, when we weren't there with people looking at us. It was a different kind of thing. I understood that. I felt that way too about my dad, you know. You know, with everybody looking at him, it makes you feel too different. Right, right. I guess, yeah, I guess that's a, definitely the exception here on the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids don't want to be different. I mean, it's why, you know, children are embarrassed if their parents don't speak good English. You know, they, they or their, <laughs> their mother is fat or whatever the hell it is. You know, children are have an embarrassment level, a very low embarrassment level. I remember when my brother, who I'm 11 years older than my brother, and I used to drive him to the beach when he was around 15, and he would go with nothing. He wouldn't even take a towel or shoes. He was like, Mr. Cool. And I would drive him and I'd say, don't you want to bring a towel or some, some flip-flops? No, no. So that's the way he went to the beach. I mean, I'd drop him off and I'd pick him up. That he would allow, because I'd have to be a block away from where his friends were when I dropped him off. But it, and I, and that was his thing. He had to be cool and he had to not have anybody see he was dropped off. And it was like, all right, you know, whatever you want to make to feel you know, cool. <laughs> so uh, on this podcast, we receive questions from our listeners sometimes. And I have two questions for you from listeners. Okay. I'm going to start off with Leslie first, uh, who has sent in a question for you. Hi, Maria and Marlo. My name is Leslie. I'm 38 and currently dating. Maria has mentioned in the past that it's so important to see how your partner reacts when you're having a good day. I was wondering if Marlo felt the same. Thanks. I don't understand how your partner reacts when you're having a good day. I thought you meant yeah. a bad day. Well, he's happy. Now. So I'll tell you something. I've noticed that um, I find it it's more important to learn what a person is like when you're having a good day versus when you're having a bad day. 
because when you're having a good day, how they react to it can tell you a lot about how they value or respect you or admire you in your relationship. I mean, think about it. How many times, I'm not saying this has ever happened to you, but I'm sure maybe in past relationships or you're, through your friends, oh, you got a promotion? Great. Now I'm never going to see you. Yeah, I know people like that. No, no, Phil doesn't do that. And I don't do that. In some ways, we're more parental to each other. I want for Phil what I would want for my child. I want him to have everything he wants. And I want him to come off great. I want him to look great. Like, for example, when we do uh, interviews together, Phil could care less about his hair, about any makeup, right. about what he wears. I mean, he'd roll out of bed and, you know, and I have to say, you've got to brush your hair. Now, come on, let me put a little, little bit of rouge on your cheeks because you're so white. I'm completely uh, enamored with him and want him to come off well. And he'll say to me, you know, if we're going out, I think you've got better outfits than that. Meaning he doesn't say, I think you look terrible, but he'll say, I think you've got better than that. And I go and change because I know he means it only for me to do well. But I, and if something great happens for me, like, you know, I'm doing a play and it's a big success. He doesn't say, oh, now I'll never see you. He says, he tells everybody, nothing makes me happier than when Marlo is successful in a play because she's the happiest then. She's happiest when she's on the stage. So no, we don't, we don't have that. But I, I, I think that would be annoying. I mean, it would be, it would, it would hurt my feelings to know that's a, a prize that I have achieved, uh, it, it, it has been dampered, you know. Did you ever experience prior to meeting Phil, like situations where men were intimidated? Well, I don't see, I don't believe that women are intimidating. I just feel like there are people that are intimidated. Well, no, but so, some, some men are intimidated by strong women. And I've, I've been out with men who I could tell were uh, a little bit intimidated. And you know, right away, well, this isn't the guy for me. I want to be, I want to be who I am. I want, I want to, I want to curse if I feel like cursing. I want right. to, I want to, you know, do what I want to do. And, and I want to be loved for it. I don't want somebody to love me for what they'd like to change in me. And then, then I'll be what they want. You know, I had a unconditional love from my father. My mom was a little more critical. She's well, mom, moms are a lot, you know, do this, don't do this. It'll be ladylike, all that stuff. My father just loved me and my brother and sister completely unconditionally. So I have a good sense of what that feels like. And when it doesn't feel like that, I, I know I can't live with it. Not for me. Do you have children? I do. I have two. I have a three and a half year old and a one year old. Well, I'm sure you'd kill for either of them to have anything they wanted. You want them to have everything. Everything. Uh, and, you know, I see it at St. Jude. You know, people come there. And you know that they'd give their arm to be the one that was sick and not have their child be sick. They would do anything. And you see real love. I, I think that's the kind of love we need to have for each other as spouses. If we don't have that, then it's always, then you always have an escape. And one of the things people have asked us over and over again, what, what do you think is the theme of a happy marriage? What did you learn mm. from the book? And we both said the same thing when we came off the road after it and said, you know, none of these people ever looked for the exit sign. That's why they lasted, no matter what happened, whether Michael J. Fox came home three years after they got married with a little baby son and said, I have a lifelong diagnosis, 
you know, Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick lost all their savings to Bernie Madoff, and it was her father who, who told them to do it. I mean, it goes on. And Jesse Jackson cheated on his wife and had a baby out of out of their marriage. I mean, there's not J Jamie Lee Curtis. Mark Consuelos threw the wedding ring out the window. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis was an addict. I mean, nobody. Yeah. They they stayed with it, and right to get out i mean if you want to get a divorce that's the easiest thing in the world you can just do it just walk out and you do it but these people didn't do that as, as kira sedgwick said she said when you get married there's no plan b that's it and if you have that if you have this feeling that this is it there is no plan b so my advice to people is take your time i took three years take your time be sure this is the one you want to live with be sure you can be the best of what you can be and you can help him be the best of what he can be. Anything else is going to just be tatters, tatters. You know, even though it's sexy and lusty and all that, which you got to have and always starts every relationship, that isn't going to last through anger and resentment. It's going to go away. One of my philosophies when it comes to love, especially as a matchmaker, is, you know, to love someone is incredibly easy. But to choose to like someone for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, that's really hard. It's, it's actually how I end my show. I say, you know, be lovable, but more importantly, be likable. And it's, and it is to that. It's like, we have to not only do, be with likable people, we have to also do likable things make, that make us interesting and, and innovative. I'm not necessarily innovative, but like contributing to our self-growth so that we can, you know, that the relationship can grow as well. You know, I, I assume that your relationship is still growing with Phil. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. And I'm learning things about him all the time. I mean, that's another thing I learned. Uh, After 40 years, yeah. you know, you're still learning about your husband. That's incredible to me. Well, because, you know, you think you know somebody so well that I, I think to myself, oh, I know exactly how he's going to react to this. And then I tell mm -hmm. him this he doesn't react to it that way at all. That's a surprise. I thought I thought he wouldn't or he would or, you know, and, and, and something will touch him that I wouldn't have thought had would touch him. You know, I'll, I'll see tears in his eyes and I'll say to him, that really moves you. And he said, yeah, it really got to me. That surprised me. I didn't know he'd be moved by that. I think that um, people who think they know their spouse in and out, you don't. You really don't. There's always, there's always more. And as the years go by, other little things come out. And sometimes Phil and I, especially this year of, of being in quarantine together, we got to know each other really a lot better. And it's interesting, I'm all over the place and he's very laid back. So he would always kind of criticize me, but why don't you settle down? Why are you going so crazy today? What, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And then he said to me one day in the pandemic, he said, you know what? You're like a water bug. You're running from one thing to the other, left and right, without even thinking about it. He said, I, I, I didn't really put it together before. You get a lot accomplished in a day. I said, yeah, I'm a multitasker. Well, she said, I, he said, I, I didn't really get it before. He just saw the aura. I don't yeah. think you realized that there were, that it was all there were milestones happening. Yeah. It was all connected, and I was getting through the day, the week, with the myriad of lists that I have. And now Are you a list person? Do you have like a to-do list thing? Every night before I go to bed, I, I make my list for the next day. I have to. I do the exact same thing. Right before bed, I have an Excel sheet and that's my to-do list for the next day. I do that exactly. I have to. Otherwise, I, I, well, I would just, I would get up in the morning and not know how to start. 
You know, I just have to look. At I the- just weren't able to sleep because I keep thinking about my list. Like, okay, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Don't forget. And so now I just, I'm like, okay, no, no, I'll just write it down. It's such a, I, you know, now I sleep in five minutes ever since I started doing it like six years ago. I love it. <laughs> Me too. And it drives some people, it doesn't drive Phil crazy, but it does drive some people crazy when, when you have a list like that. But, you know, people that work around you. But I'm always, okay, let's check that off. Let's check that off. Let's get it done. And by the end of the day, if I've gotten a lot of it done, you know, great. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and somebody once told me, do the hard thing first. Get it out of the way. My uh, instant grat personality would rather do the four easy things first. Do the hard thing first. Because early in the day, you know, the nuns used to say, the morning is golden, the afternoon is silver, and night is lead in terms of studying. And I right. always, the morning is golden. Get, get that really hard thing over with. You have to write something for a deadline. Do it in the morning. Get it out of the way. And then the rest of the day, you can do all this other little stuff. Yeah. Right. I have one last question from a listener. Hi, Marlo. It's Lori Burzak. I feel like I know you because I've listened to your record, Free to Be You and Me, a thousand times, and I know every word. Thank you for changing the trajectory of young people's lives in the 1970s. You are amazing, an icon and a beacon of light. Quick question about you and Phil. Have you ever had a major conflict that you needed to resolve, and how did you do it? Thanks again for everything you do. Well, I, th- I think our biggest conflict was the fact that we lived in two cities. And you know, when we got married, I was living in L.A., and he was living in Chicago. I was I was very productive in those years. I was producing. I must have done like 12 movies for television. He was on the air every day and he had four children at home. And so it was very, very difficult uh, to get together. And uh, we would take turns, you know, coming on a Friday night, leaving on a Sunday night and back and forth. And, and there was, it was very, very stressful. And he would get mad at me and say, well, why can't you come on Thursday rather than Friday? And why can't you leave on Monday rather than Sunday? I'd say my job is just as important as yours. Just because I'm not on the air every day doesn't mean that I don't have to be at the office working on these films. So it was that was a conflict, and uh, and we solved it by both of us moving to New York. But it w- but it was a couple of years of you know this is so hard, and we broke up. How many years? Well, that was the three years we were going together, and we mm-hmm. broke up uh, once. Not when we weren't married then. We broke up once because we both said it's too hard. You know, this constant arguing. And and then on Sunday nights when one of us would leave, I would cry or he would be upset. And we'd always have a fight because we knew we were going to pull apart again. And so uh, we said it's too much. So we, we broke up. We broke up for three months. We didn't speak for three months. And we both missed each other terribly. And when that three months was up, um, we didn't say we we're going to break up for three months. We just said we we're going to break up. And after about three months, we got back together. And then we decided to get married and he would move from Chicago to New York and I would move from LA to New York and we'd make a home here. And do you feel like by being in the same city, the big obstacle was suddenly disappeared? Oh yeah, that was huge. Yeah, that was, it's very upsetting not to be with the person you love. You don't have anybody to comfort you. You don't have anybody to make love to. You don't have anybody to talk to. I mean, the phone, the telephone is really, doesn't do and well. you didn't even have FaceTime then, too. No, exactly. Exactly. It was hard. And Phil is not a small talker. So, you know. A, a previous episode on my podcast five weeks ago, I think, I actually interviewed my husband and talk about long distance because my husband and I had a commuter relationship for six years. It was in Boston. I was in New York. 
we were dating throughout this time. We got engaged throughout this time. We got married throughout this time. And our, our, our first kid, his first 10 months of his life, George was going back and forth. And I used to, you know, what you just said, every weekend we would have, it would just be anxiety filled. You know, like I didn't, I didn't, you know, on on one end, it's kind of like avoidance, like, you know, this is going to happen. I don't want to talk about it. But then it's like, but why do you have to leave? Or why won't your boss let you stay? You know, like, it's just the same argument. And then suddenly we're in the same state, the same city, the same house full time. And then just the anxiety just disappears. It's like finally like a really happy marriage. But it was a gamble. I know. I used to always count the days, you know. Okay, it's Friday, Saturday, Saturday. I've got, got three days. Oh, he can stay till Monday. I got four days. I mean, everything was like about. I was always co- literally counting on my fingers how many days we had, and and also how many like when we went on vacation. I, I was more anxious on vacation than I should have been because I was so nervous about how quickly the time was going because time mm-hmm. together was so precious, which is why time became our gift to each other. On our anniversary every year, we go away together. Sometimes we go away when when he's doing the Donahue show, he could get two weeks. Or sometimes we'd only have a weekend because one of us was working, but we'd always go somewhere away. If it was just to upstate Washington, Connecticut or somewhere, just to know that that's what we, that that time that we gave each other, that would be it. I I always said, I don't want to, I don't need diamond bracelets. I don't need anything. I just want to be with you and, you know, and have the time you know, to get up late and maybe read the paper to each other and all that stuff, which is what we enjoy. What do you hope people will re- get, receive, manifest from reading What Makes a Marriage Last or your podcast, Double Date? Well, I think they should listen to them and see what kind of suits them. You know, you, everybody has a different, like you and I have the commuter marriage in common. Not everybody has. Yeah. You know what is your issue? Is it is it illness? Is, is it is it jealousy? You know how do you deal with these things? And as I said, the idea that there's no plan B and you're not looking for the exit sign. I we ask many couples, not all of them. Did you ever use the D word, divorce? Some did, and some said no, no, never. I remember Trudy Styler, who's married to Sting. She said that's a heinous thing to do. And some people say, well, I kind of throw it out every now and then. But the uh, we never have. I've never said to Phil, I'm going to get a divorce. We've never done that. Now, I, first of all, it's a threat. And I don't, want a, I don't want a divorce. I mean, there's nothing he's ever done to me that's so heinous that, you know, and vice versa. That's not our, that's not our vocabulary. And I think you shouldn't use it. It's, it's not a good idea. Emotionally abusive. I was going to say it's emotionally bullying. It really is. And I think, you know, more, you know, a lot of people said you just have to go to your own corners, cool off, and then figure out what the real issue is for you or whatever. And without pointing a finger at the other one, come back and say, let's talk. I I think we got off track here. Brian Cranston said an interesting thing. He said, you know, when we're in the middle of an argument, he said, I'm kind of like a conductor on a train. I can see the track. If we go this way, we're going to be fighting and it's going to be awful. I'm just going to mm-hmm. pull the track and go that way, get off this track and stop this argument now before it gets bad. And Alan Alda said, I'll be in an argument with my wife, Arlene, and feeling, you know, really angry. And then I suddenly say to myself, hey, wait a minute. This is a woman I love. I don't ever want to be without her. I got to pull back this thing, you know. 
and remember that she's the one I love. These are all like little tools in your toolbox, you know? Right. That's what I say. When you read them all or hear them all, you'll say, oh, that's so me. Oh, that's so him. And then you start to modify, you know, like, like I love what Michael J. Fox said, uh, we don't look for trouble. We're not picking at scabs. Some people, right. some people are picking. And another thing that Kelly Ripper said that I thought was interesting is don't hang out with unhappy people. Hang mm. out with happily married people. We do. We have lots and lots of friends who've been married long enough. You wrote a book, Marlo. You wrote a book. I know you're surrounded by happy couples. You wrote a book. <laughs> you're, you're going on with double dates. Kelly Ripper said they could be in a cab on their way home and they mm. start fighting and they realize they're carrying the energy of the people they just had dinner with who were bickering. Right. And you do. But if you hang out with people who like each other and aren't saying little snide things about each other or to each other, I hate that. I hate being at somebody's house and, and you know, we'll be in the kitchen and the wife will say to me, oh, he's such an asshole. And I think, I don't want to be here. I don't want to I'm be I'm with here. you on that. It's different if your best girlfriend calls and says, oh, he's being such a jerk. Okay, fine. You talk about it. Of course. Right. I mean, yeah. You don't want to be a part of, of that thing they've got that's bad. I don't want to be a part of it. I want to wallow in the good stuff. Well, I think everyone needs to buy What Makes Marriage Last, which just came out in paperback, right? Yeah, so it's much cheaper. And it looks beautiful. It still has, it's still as big and it still has the gold lettering. Yeah, that's pretty, isn't it? It's got the hardcover. It's so big and it's so heavy. When I went to buy it, I expected it to be like a small book. And she give, the woman at Barnes & Noble gives it to me. And I'm like, this is an encyclopedia. And she goes, she reads the title and she's like, well, it's probably an encyclopedia for marriage, Maria. Like if it shouldn't say my name, she's just like, looks like an encyclopedia for marriage. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, let's when, take it. When we started out, we told our publisher that we figured that each story would be about 2,500 words. Well, each story mm. is about 5,000, 6,000 words because <laughs> it was so interesting, you know, that we right. started to edit trans the transcription. I say, so we got to have that story. We got to have this. And we said, the hell with it. Let's just turn it in long. And if they want us to cut it, we'll cut it. So we turned it in and our, our publisher, Judith Kerr, who's published books of mine before, she said, this is very long, but I like it. I don't want you to cut anything. So it's 600 pages. I mean, that's long. That's like war and peace. But, um, but every, every couple was worth it, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and you know what I love uh, also just the uh, fangirl on the book and the podcast right now is that like, I don't think, I think anytime we've heard about couples, it's through tabloids. It's never like from the mouth of, right. you know, of these individuals. And then suddenly you have 40 couples who open the door. I mean, God, look, let's just start saying George Stephanopoulos and Ali Wentworth, they, they are a very private couple. You don't know a lot about their marriage. And suddenly the door swings open into their living room, which I love that you describe everybody's living room on your, in the beginning of every episode. Anyway, and all of a sudden they're using in their own words, they're opening up to you and Phil, they're being vulnerable. They're in the intimacy of the conversation. And it's like, well, okay. So basically Phil Donahue and Marlo Thomas have made tabloids just completely irrelevant because I could just read this book and learn everything I've always wanted to know. And, and it comes off as positive because like you said, you know, you can find something in each couple to say, oh, I like that. You know, or I see myself in that. Oh, I like that. Like, 
I have sent episodes to my husband being like, listen to this, listen to what, what they do. And, you know, he, he listens. Exactly. And that, like when I said that James Carville said, kick the can down the road when you're having one of those arguments, it goes around and around. You said, no, you didn't. I said, no, you said, no, I, you know, it was on. Mm. Uh, go on for a day. And James Carville said, when you're in the middle of that, just say, let's kick the can down the road. Phil and I came off the road after seeing them. And we were having an argument like that. And he said to me, oh, let's kick the can down the road. And we both started laughing. And now it's our thing we say. We say, let's kick it down the road. And we go, yeah, you're right. Let's just kick it down the road. So right. Carville said, uh, the success of every marriage has an alley of cans that have been kicked. Just get rid of it. It's not worth it. I love that. I think I might keep that. Marlo, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Ask a Matchmaker. Is there anything else I can, where can I redirect people other than subscribing to your podcast and buying your book? Is, is, can I, can I, where else can I redirect them? Should I redirect them to St. Jude's? Sure, you can direct them to anything, but most of you should just say, everybody find a way to be happy with what you have. I love that Viola Davis said, marriage isn't 50-50, it's 100-100. Give 100%. The other one gives 100%. You've got a real chance at, at having a, a happy day, a happy life. And uh, Bob Woodward and his wife say, I love you every night before they go to sleep. And Phil and I are doing that now. Just, just to do it. I said, I said to Bob, do you do that because you had an argument? And he said, no. It's kind of to say everything's okay in our little cave. Uh, it's just a way of, of letting it out and saying how you feel. It's a way of acknowledging and appreciating what you have. And we're lucky. We're lucky to have it. I love that. I really appreciate you and everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and how I can help you, visit agapematch.com. The link is in the episode notes. You can also follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria for more dating and relationship content. In a few weeks, we'll have a new Closures and Rants episode. And if you have something you want to get off your chest, visit askamatchmaker.com to submit. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.